Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We got lots of requests for an episode on Emily Warren Roebling, thanks to the TV show The Gilded Age. I have not watched this television show at all. Moi non plus. There's too much TV to watch, and I just haven't. Uh, I did sit down after getting these requests, and I was like, I'm going to watch the first episode. And I don't remember what the runtime on the first episode was, but it was more minutes than I had. And I was like, uh, maybe later. And I, I just, I haven't watched it. Uh, according to IMDb, though, Emily Warren Roebling is played by Liz Wisen in episodes five and seven of the second season. Uh, that second season has ended now, so hopefully folks are still interested in this episode. Emily Warren Roebling played a crucial role in the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. This was not near as much of a secret as most recent descriptions of all this make it sound like. Uh, there's this tone of like, and no one knew she was involved at all until just now. Not the case. Uh, it was, however, highly unusual for a woman to have this kind of role in a major engineering project at the time. This was a role she stepped into after her husband became disabled. So this is a story of an engineering marvel and also a story about what mainstream U.S. society expected of women and of disabled people in the 19th century. Emily Warren was born on September 23, 1843, in Cold Spring, New York. She was the 11th of 12 children born to Sylvanus and Phoebe Lickley Warren, although only six of those siblings survived childhood. Their family was comfortable but not really wealthy, and they were prominent in their community. Emily's father held a number of elected roles in the state and local government, and he was also friends with previous podcast subject Washington Irving. I saw one description of the family that was like, they weren't rich by Hudson River Valley standards. <laughs> and I was like, would they have been rich somewhere else? 
1858, Emily started studying at Georgetown Academy of the Visitation. This was a Catholic school for girls established in Washington, D.C. in 1799. The course of study included subjects like algebra, geometry, the sciences, languages, and music, and students sat for public exams every year. While Emily was enrolled there, the school subsidized its costs of operations by selling enslaved people and by hiring out their labor. The people who were enslaved at the school or were collectively owned by the religious order that ran the school were emancipated under the District of Columbia Emancipation Act on April 16, 1862. Emily's father died in 1859, at which point her oldest brother, Governor Kemble Warren, known as G.K., took over as head of the family. G.K. had graduated from the U.S. Military Academy, also known as West Point, and eventually rose to the rank of general in the U.S. Army. Emily and G.K. were close, and in 1864, during the Civil War, she went to visit him and attended a ball that was being held to try to raise the morale of the troops. And it was there that she met Washington Roebling, who was on her brother's staff. Roebling was the son of John Augustus Roebling, who had been born in Germany and immigrated to the United States. John Roebling was an engineer who was regarded as one of North America's foremost experts on suspension bridges. He had also developed and patented an improvement on the making of wire rope, the kind of rope that was used in making those bridges. Washington had trained with his father before pursuing a formal study at Rensselaer Institute, later Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. He had graduated in 1857, joined the U.S. Army in 1861, and eventually attained the rank of colonel. In the Army, during the Civil War, he worked as an engineer and also served in combat. Emily and Washington fell in love immediately, and they wrote one another an enormous volume of letters, many of which still survive and are in the collection of the Center for Brooklyn History. They got married in Cold Spring on January 18, 1865, in a double ceremony, with Emily's brother Edgar marrying Cornelia Barrows at the same time. After the Civil War ended, Emily and Washington moved to Cincinnati so Washington could work with his father on the Cincinnati-Covington Suspension Bridge, which is now known as the John A. Roebling Suspension Bridge. Construction on this bridge had started in 1856, not long after the completion of the Niagara River Gorge Bridge, which Roebling also designed, but construction had been interrupted because of the war. After the Cincinnati-Covington Bridge opened, John Roebling focused on an even more ambitious project, one that he had been pondering since the early 1850s. It was a bridge over the East River, connecting Brooklyn to the city of New York, specifically the southern part of Manhattan. Today, Brooklyn and Manhattan are, of course, two boroughs of New York, but at the time, Brooklyn and New York were two separate cities. To John Roebling, and to a lot of others, this bridge was an immense but desperately needed project. The only way to get between the two cities was by water, so there was an incredible amount of ferry and barge traffic back and forth across the East River. It was continually busy at the best of times, but the East River is really a tidal estuary, and strong tides could wreak havoc on the ferry crossings, and so could storms and fog and other weather if the East River froze over in the winter, it could shut down traffic between the two cities entirely. 
But such a bridge would need to be very long to make it all the way across the river, as well as tall enough to allow ships to pass underneath and able to support the weight of pedestrians, carriages, and streetcars and other mass transit. And traffic along and across the East River could not stop while the bridge was being built. In other words, this seemed like a nearly impossible building and construction feat. In preparation for this project, John sent Washington to Europe to study bridge-building methods, especially the use of pneumatic caissons. These were pressurized compartments for working underwater, and we'll be getting into them in more detail in a minute. Emily went with him. She was pregnant when they left for Europe in 1867. Given the state of transportation in the middle of the 19th century, this would have been a difficult trip for anybody, and being pregnant probably made it even more exhausting and uncomfortable for her. In addition to that, Emily sustained a serious fall not long before she gave birth. Their son, John Augustus Roebling II, was born in Germany on November 21st, 1867, And while Emily did largely recover from her injuries, their effects were serious enough that she couldn't have any other children. The Roeblings returned to the United States in March of 1868, and Washington joined his father in his work on the Brooklyn Bridge. And to be clear, there is an entirely different story we could be telling about this bridge, one that involves controversies and political infighting, corruption, and New York's Tammany Hall political machine, headed by Boss Tweed, who was one of the trustees of the New York Bridge Company. The bridge also faced fierce opposition from the ferry industry, along with concerns about whether it could be built safely and whether the finished bridge would be safe. And of course, there were people who owned homes and other property that would be affected by this bridge, everything from altering the view of the river to raising their buildings to make way for the bridge. But while we're going to be talking about some of what went into the bridge's construction, what we are really focused on today is Emily and Washington's story. Like you could have a whole podcast series just about the bridge. There are entire books just about the bridge. Uh, We're not covering everything about the bridge. We're really focused on these two people. We will get back to this, including how Washington's role in the bridge suddenly became a lot bigger before construction had even begun after a sponsor break. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Roebling's final designs for the Brooklyn Bridge, also known as the East River Bridge, were approved on June 21st, 1869. Of course, this followed all kinds of planning and back and forth that we're not really getting into. This bridge would have two immense towers, one on the Manhattan side of the East River and one on the Brooklyn side. These towers would support four steel cables with huge anchorages securing the cables at each end of the bridge. At the time, these towers were expected to be taller than any structure in New York, except for the spire of Trinity Church and they would be built on the bedrock on the river bottom. This was estimated to be 12 meters down on the Brooklyn side and 22 meters down on the Manhattan side. But on July 22, 1869, John Roebling died. A little less than a month before, and just a week after getting approval on the design, John and Washington had been doing a final survey for the Brooklyn Tower. John had gone out to the end of a ferry dock to get the best view of the site, and when a ferry tried to dock there, his foot had been crushed. Uh, I'm a little unclear on the exact details, because there are different accounts of this, including from the time, that use different terminology to explain what happened. And the terms that they use don't mean the same thing. But basically, he had been standing on part of the structure that the ferries routinely struck while they were docking. That was why that part of the structure was there, to, like, deflect and spread out impact from the approaching ferries. And when this ferry was approaching, he stepped back onto an adjacent beam. He thought that would be a safe place to stand, but it wasn't. And when the ferry struck the dock, his foot was trapped underneath an overlapping part of it. Some recent descriptions of this call it a freak accident, or they describe the ferry as out of control. But reporting on the accident in the Brooklyn Eagle on June 30th, two days after it happened, make it sound like the ferry was docking normally. David McCullough's The Great Bridge, the epic story of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, makes it sound like standing on the beam was a rookie mistake, one John understood that he had made. John was taken to a doctor where he took charge of his own care. Four of his toes had to be amputated, which he insisted be done without anesthesia. He dressed his own wounds afterward, and all during all of this just continued to focus on what needed to happen with the bridge. Before long, he developed signs of tetanus, which is often fatal if untreated, and there were no effective treatments for it yet. 
Some descriptions seem to imply that John caused his own death through the treatments he insisted on, but really, the toxin-producing bacteria that caused tetanus could have been introduced into his wounds at any point during all of this, including during the initial injury if it broke the skin. Antiseptic surgical techniques were still in their infancy in Western medicine. Joseph Lister had started publishing on the topic in March of 1867, but that was pretty recent, and those ideas were not widely accepted in the U.S. until about a decade later. Washington Roebling, who was 32, was soon hired to take his late father's place as chief engineer on the Brooklyn Bridge Project. Although he was following designs that his father had made, doing so meant that he was continually making decisions about how to implement those designs in the physical world. And initially, he also did a lot of work on site, especially when it came to things that were critical to the bridge's successful completion. This included working underwater in the pneumatic caissons. Briefly and very approximately, imagine this as a wooden building without a floor. The ones for the Brooklyn Bridge measured roughly 170 by 102 feet, that's roughly 51 by 31 meters, with a ceiling formed by layers and layers of timber. This would be lowered down to the riverbed and pressurized to keep the water out. Workers would enter the caisson through a shaft and dig away clay, rock, boulders, and other material from the riverbed, which was removed through a waste shaft. As the workers removed the material, the caisson would sink down into that space until it hit the bedrock. And at that point, it would be filled with concrete and become part of the bridge's foundation. This was hot, dirty work, and it was also dangerous. Among other things, people didn't fully understand the effects of atmospheric pressure on the body or what it took to keep nitrogen bubbles from forming in people's blood when they left a pressurized environment. Illnesses had been reported among workers in pressurized caissons as early as 1841. Eventually, the severe pain, dizziness, fatigue, difficulty thinking, and other symptoms that we know today as decompression sickness were being described as caisson disease. At least 100 workers on the Brooklyn Bridge developed decompression sickness. It's possible there were more since record-keeping was spotty. Some accounts cite workers on the Brooklyn Bridge as coining the term the bends because of the way decompression sickness can cause people to suddenly double over in pain. But the Brooklyn Bridge's caissons were filled with concrete in 1871 and 1872, and Merriam-Webster cites the first use of the term the bends in writing as happening a decade later. The Oxford English Dictionary gives an even later year of 1894. Washington Roebling first developed decompression sickness after trying to fight a fire in the Brooklyn caisson in 1870, this fire had spread within the timbers of the ceiling of the caisson before anybody noticed what was going on. It had burned through these pockets of pressurized oxygen that were hidden in those layers and layers of timber. Roebling spent hours in the caisson searching for pockets of undetected fire. Eventually, this fire was extinguished, but it led to months of delay as the timbers involved were repaired and replaced. Washington developed a second and more severe case of decompression sickness in 1872, toward the end of the sinking of the caisson work on the New York side. The water is deeper on that side of the East River, requiring greater pressure within the caisson, and this caisson was deeper than any other underwater project up to this point. 
Ultimately, this caisson wasn't lowered all the way to the bedrock, in part because of the increasing risk of caisson sickness among the workers. Yeah, uh, Washington uh, Roebling basically assessed the whole situation and was like, this is going to be fine. It's going to have to be fine. Uh, This time, Washington was in so much pain that he had to be carried home, and the doctors that examined him thought he would probably die within days. He experienced mood swings, severe pain, numbness and weakness in his legs, sensitivity to light and other difficulty with his eyesight, and he had trouble concentrating. It's possible that he had a series of small strokes as a result of this decompression sickness. After this, he was not able to return to the bridge site. Emily started handling all his correspondence, reading his letters to him and taking dictation. She also advocated for him, including meeting with Henry C. Murphy, president of the New York Bridge Company, to convince him that her husband should remain in the position of chief engineer. They arranged for him to take a leave of absence, during which he and Emily would go to Weisbaden, Germany, to stay at a health spa. They wound up staying there for six months, returning home in 1874. Washington really didn't recover during his time in Germany, and at first they tried to keep some distance from the stress of the job site. So they lived in Trenton, New Jersey, near the Roebling family's industrial complex for making wire rope. Washington managed the bridge project from there through letters, with Emily handling all that correspondence for him. In 1877, they moved back to Brooklyn, to an apartment on Columbia Heights that had a view of the bridge construction. Washington watched the bridge's progress through binoculars and a telescope. Emily acted as his liaison to the construction site, meeting with him and carrying his instructions to the site every morning, and then returning in the evening to update him on the progress and talk through the next steps. Over time, she developed a thorough knowledge of the bridge and its construction. When the team of assistant engineers who were working on the bridge needed clarification on something, Emily was the one who provided it. When officials wanted an explanation for why something was taking so long or why it was costing as much as it was, that once again came from Emily. When bids were solicited for new components or materials and the bidders had questions about what they needed to submit, the person they asked was Emily. She understood all the math and all the engineering and all the logistics involved. It's possible that Emily wrote a series of public addresses that were delivered by master mechanic Frank Farrington about the bridge and its construction. She definitely became the first woman ever to address the American Society of Civil Engineers, which was years before there were any women among its actual members. In December of 1881, Emily was one of the people selected to walk across the partially completed bridge, leading a team of officials. So partially complete in this instance means that this was mostly an open bridge structure with planks laid down to walk on. Sounds like my attic. Uh, Some officials in the group decided to take a ferry back because they did not want to repeat that walk on planks high over the East River, but Emily was apparently just unflappable. According to some accounts, once they had crossed the bridge, someone opened a bottle of champagne they had brought and toasted her. Word slowly spread beyond the job site that Emily Roebling was so deeply involved with the work on the bridge. On January 16, 1882, an alumni dinner was held at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which, of course, was Washington's alma mater. Mining engineer Rossiter W. Raymond gave an address at this dinner. It was a toast to sweethearts and wives, in which he said, quote, 
I cannot forbear, gentlemen, the attempt, in closing, to put into words a vision that has risen before me as I have sat among you. A vision of real life, incarnating far more forcibly than my feeble rhymes, the strength, the versatility, the helpfulness, the victory of human love. It is the vision of a chamber in the neighboring city, where lies one of your number, a martyr to his own zeal and devotion as an engineer, whose monument, when long hence we trust, he shall have passed away, will span the estuary beyond which tomorrow's sun is soon to rise, a memorial more stately than mausoleum or pyramid. And in this picture of the master workman, directing from his bed of pain the masterwork, I see another figure. A queen of beauty and of fashion, become a servant for love's sake, a true helpmate, furnishing swift feet and skillful hands and quick brain and strong heart to reinforce the weakness and the weariness that could not unassisted fully execute the plans they form, but that stand with this assistance almost as in the vigor of health. Gentlemen, I know that the name of a woman should not be lightly spoken in a public place. I am aware that such a speech is especially audacious from the mouth of a stranger. But I believe you will acquit me of any lack of delicacy or of reverence when I utter what lies, at this moment, half-articulate upon all your lips, the name of Mrs. Washington Roebling. While Raymond's toast described Washington Roebling as a master workman directing his master work, it was delivered in the midst of ongoing efforts to remove him from the role of chief engineer because of his disabilities. Those efforts had gathered steam in 1881 after the election of a new mayor. And of course, some people were deeply suspicious of the fact that a woman was essentially taking his place. A few months after the alumni dinner on July 11, 1882, an article ran in the Brooklyn Union, criticizing how long the bridge's construction had taken and accusing Washington of leaving the Board of Bridge Trustees in the dark. It read in part, quote, Personally, Colonel Roebling has the sympathy of the public in the sad illness which he incurred through the bridge. It goes without saying that a professional man who is not in a physical condition to appear at a single meeting of the Board of Trustees that employs him is not a proper person to clothe with the vast responsibility that belongs to the chief engineer of a work like this. Yeah, at this point, the bridge had definitely taken an incredibly long time and it had been very expensive, and there are all kinds of controversies we're not getting into. Uh, but Washington Roebling was really scapegoated for all of it, and the fact that he was disabled, like... Made that easy to do. Well, yeah, and it like to a lot of people, it made it seem like transparently obvious that he was not a fit person to do this. Um, in spite of these sentiments and the efforts to replace him, Roebling did remain in his role, and the bridge opened a little less than a year later, which we'll talk about after sponsor break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. 
It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it. And I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge drew near in 1883, a reporter from the Brooklyn Union came to the Roebling home at number 110 Columbia Heights to interview Washington Roebling. Earlier in the day, though, Washington had met with an artist who was making a bust of him for the opening ceremonies, and he needed to rest. So at first, this reporter talked to Emily. In the reporter's words, quote, as has already been stated in these columns, the gifted lady has been one of the most efficient aides to her husband in his great work since he was prostrated by the caisson disease. And through having assisted him in his intricate calculations and having attended to all his correspondence, is familiar with every detail of the structure. In the end, about half this reporter's published interview was with Emily, before it was determined that Washington was ready to be interviewed as well. Shortly before the opening ceremonies, Emily was also the first person to drive across the bridge, in a gig with a retractable hood, carrying a white rooster in a cage as a symbol of victory. After that rooster died, it was mounted and kept in the Roebling home. I don't know whether the rooster died later of natural causes or whether this was, I don't know. It's an oddly charming detail. It is. It comes up in, like, every account of this. Uh, The Brooklyn Bridge opened to enormous fanfare on May 24th, 1883, after more than 14 years of construction. At the time of its opening, it became the world's longest suspension bridge. As we said earlier, this was an engineering marvel. President Chester A. Arthur, New York Governor Grover Cleveland, and all kinds of other elected officials were present for these festivities. The Roeblings had thought it would be too much of a physical strain for Washington to try to attend this in person. So instead, they held a reception at their home for friends and colleagues afterward, including the president. 
The opening ceremonies included several speeches. One was by Abram S. Hewitt, in which he recognized many of the people involved, beginning with, quote, John A. Roebling, who conceived the project and formulated the plan of the bridge. And, quote, Washington A. Roebling, who, inheriting his father's genius and more than his father's knowledge and skill, has directed the execution of this great work from its inception to its completion. Hewitt then mentioned the assistant engineers, foremen, and, quote, the unnamed men by whose unflinching courage in the depths of the caissons and upon the suspended wires, the work was carried on amid storms and accidents and dangers sufficient to appall the stoutest heart. And he went on to say, quote, One name, however, which may find no place in the official records, cannot be passed over here in silence. In ancient times, when great works were constructed, a goddess was chosen to whose tender care they were dedicated. Thus, the ruins of the Acropolis today recall the name of Pallas Athena to an admiring world. In the Middle Ages, the blessing of some saint was invoked to protect from the rude attacks of the barbarians and the destructive hand of time, the building erected by man's devotion to the worship of God. So with this bridge will ever be coupled the thought of one through the subtle alembic of whose brain and by whose facile fingers communication was maintained between the directing power of its construction and the the obedient agencies of its execution. It is thus an everlasting monument to the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman and of her capacity for that higher education from which she has been too long debarred. The name of Mrs. Emily Warren Roebling will thus be inseparably associated with all that is admirable in human nature and with all that is wonderful in the constructive world of art. The Brooklyn Bridge was Washington Roebling's last major construction project, although he did some other design and consultation work after it was completed. About a year later, the Roeblings moved to Troy, New York, while their son studied at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He had a heart condition, and Emily wanted to be close by. John Roebling II got married and later moved to Arizona, and Emily and Washington moved to a mansion they had built in Trenton. After the bridge was completed and their son had started an adult life of his own, Emily Warren Roebling focused most of her time on social causes and philanthropy. She was descended from a Revolutionary War veteran named John Barrett, and she became active in the Daughters of the American Revolution, including serving as Vice President General of the Society's National Organization. She joined the New Jersey chapter of the Federation of Women's Clubs and held offices in a number of other clubs and societies, including Cirrhosis, which was the first professional women's organization in the U.S., the Women's National War Relief Association, the Prison Aid Society, and the New Jersey Historical Society, among many, many others. In 1896, she took another trip to Europe. This time she was on her own because the sea voyage and subsequent travel were incompatible with her husband's health. She was received at Buckingham Palace by Princess Christian in an audience that Queen Victoria commanded should be treated as though it had been with the monarch herself. She also attended the coronation of Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and, after returning to the U.S., embarked on a lecture tour recounting her experiences. In 1899, Emily Warren Roebling was one of 48 women to earn a certificate in business law from the women's law class at New York University. 
She gave a commencement address titled A Wife's Disabilities, in which she advocated for women's equality under the law, including women's suffrage and property rights. She was also awarded a $50 prize in an essay contest given by Mrs. J. Hedges Crowell for the best essay on the theme of What an American Woman Loses by Her Marriage to a Foreigner. Some accounts conflate the commencement address with this essay, but they were two different pieces. Roebling's thoughts on the contest theme also wouldn't be considered particularly progressive today. I'll interrupt and say the contest theme itself would not no. be considered progressive today at all. <laughs> it is problematic. Um, her work on the theme concluded, quote, thinking this subject carefully over for many weeks, I have come to the conclusion that what an American woman chiefly loses by her marriage to a foreigner is the forfeit of her claim to an American husband. A good American husband is the highest possible representative of civilized man. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't have anything further to add to that, except maybe, like, it uh, It got an, an, in, an interior yikes from me yeah. when I read it. Yeah. In 1903... Roebling edited and published the journal of the Reverend Silas Constant, pastor of the Presbyterian Church at Yorktown, New York, which may seem kind of random based on all the things we've talked about in her life so far. In the preface to this, she wrote that she had once been given a collection of four generations of family papers, which she had burned because they were old and musty, not realizing when she did that that she was destroying, quote, links in the chain connecting the past with the present that no amount of thought or search could replace. She said that in editing and publishing this journal, it was an attempt to make amends for that past deed. Throughout all of this, she occasionally returned to the idea of the bridge, including commenting on various proposals for changes or modifications or the building of new bridges. She was regularly quoted in newspaper articles about the bridge, with that reporting frequently referencing how involved she had been in its construction. And her work on the bridge came up in her own correspondence as well, as she wrote in an 1898 letter to her son, quote, I am still feeling well enough to stoutly maintain against all critics, including my own son, that I have more brains, common sense, and know-how generally than have any two engineers, civil or uncivil. And but for me, the Brooklyn Bridge would never have had the name Roebling in any way connected with it. I don't know the context for this letter, <laughs> but I'm sort of imagining it as uh, maybe their son being like, hey, you're getting a little older, maybe you should take a step back, and her being like, nope. That is some family business right out in public. Yeah. Emily Warren Roebling died at home in Trenton, New Jersey on February 28, 1893. A lot of sources give her cause of death as stomach cancer, although a few instead cite some kind of muscle weakness. Uh, some of those claim that this weakness was brought on by her ruining her health by working on the bridge. Several New York area newspapers reported on her illness in the last days of her life, many of them referencing the role that she had played in the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. While various sources today point out that she did not have an obituary in the New York Times until 2018 when she was featured as part of its Overlooked series 
Obituaries were printed in at least two newspapers on March 1st of 1893. One was the New York Tribune, and the other was the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. The Tribune described her first and greatest prominence as, quote, directing the details of the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. The Eagle called her, quote, one of the best-known club women in the country, before saying, quote, Mrs. Roebling's chief claim to fame lies in the part which she took in superintending the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. Later on, this obituary read, quote, she had followed the progress of the bridge almost as carefully as had her husband, and she knew almost as much about it as he did. But it also added, quote, the work done by Mrs. Roebling at this time was far too great for any woman, and her health has never been the same since then. Washington Roebling later remarried, and he died in 1926 at the age of 89. In 1951, a plaque was unveiled at the Brooklyn Bridge, which reads, quote, The Builders of the Bridge, dedicated to the memory of Emily Warren Roebling, 1843 to 1903, whose faith and courage helped her stricken husband, Colonel Washington A. Roebling, C.E., 1837 to 1926, complete the construction of this bridge from the plans of his father, John A. Roebling, C.E., 1806 to 1869, who gave his life to the bridge. Back of every great work, we can find the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman. This tablet erected by the Brooklyn Engineers Club with funds raised by popular subscription. On May 29, 2018, the block of Columbia Heights where the Roeblings lived in Brooklyn was renamed Emily Warren Roebling Way. Today, there are at least two children's books about her. They are Secret Engineer, How Emily Roebling Built the Brooklyn Bridge, and How Emily Saved the Bridge, the story of Emily Warren Roebling, both published in 2019. There's also a novel titled No Life But This, which came out in 2020. There is also a book, like a nonfiction book, called Silent Builder, Emily Warren Roebling and the Brooklyn Bridge. To be clear, I did not get this book for... Today's episode, the original edition was published in 1984 by Associated Faculty Press, and it's 188 pages long. Subsequent editions are a lot longer, but were independently published and just don't seem to be available in many libraries. So that book exists. I could not get my hands on it. Do you have listener mail for us as well? I do. I have listener mail. This is from Amy. And it is uh, about something that we alluded to in a recent Saturday Classic, but we know not everyone listens to every episode, so we're just going to say it again. Amy wrote, Our old episodes disappearing. Recently, my podcast feed, Overcast, has apparently started removing old episodes. Is this just me, or is this intentional? I've been working through some older episodes I hadn't heard before, and until recently, the archives went all the way back to the initial 2008 episodes. As of today, though, the oldest looks to be from July 2010, Ivan the Sixth, and I think older ones have maybe gradually disappeared. Thanks for any info. I was hoping to catch up someday, but maybe that isn't possible anymore. Amy. So I wrote back to Amy. They answered the question. I will now answer it for anyone who is experiencing the same thing. As I understand Overcast, it pulls from the Apple Podcasts feed of the show. And back in, I think, October, Apple Podcasts put in a limit of how many episodes could be in a show's feed to 2,000 episodes. We have more than that. (laughs) Uh, And so the oldest episodes just progressively drop off as we put out new ones. 
Um, I think Overcast actually is sort of lagging a tiny bit behind Apple in terms of dropping off the old ones. It did seem like there were just a few more episodes on Overcast than in Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, not the only player with a limit. Many of them are, uh, have you know, have either had limits for a long time or are putting in new limits. I totally understand doing this. Yeah. Because there are continually more and more podcasts and we all have continually more and more episodes. It is not within our control, though, right? That these are decisions that are being made by Apple and Overcast and whoever else is making podcast players. Um, the whole feed, all the way back to 2008, at which point it was a very different show with totally different hosts who have not worked with us in many, 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 many years. Uh, that RSS feed still has everything in it. And the iHeart, uh, the iHeartRadio website still has everything in it. iHeartRadio uh, app still has everything in it. Um, there are also other players that still include entire feeds for all the shows, but since there is so much variation from one device to another and one app store to another, uh, we can't really keep up to date with all of them. Right, and I would not be surprised if more start doing limiters because, as you said, like, it's an industry that continues to grow and because it's everyone from, like, people like us that work for a company that produces them to people doing them on their own, like, there's no way to really manage how many get published in a given week yeah. across yeah. the industry. So the solution for companies that host and are or feed and are running out of space on servers or just trying to look forward to a future where this continues to be a growth industry, they got to start putting in limiters. I know, I know it stinks. Yeah. And I will also say, I know we have uh, sort of made a, made a thing of having a PhD in SYMHC uh, for people who have listened to every single episode. That is something I would only encourage if like you super want to do it. <laughs> And if you want to listen to episodes that are by totally different hosts with a totally different outlook and a totally different format of the show, really, even uh, from the super early ones, which are only often five or 10 minutes long, um, maybe not five, but maybe more like 15. There's some that are pretty short. I will also say something super rebellious. Okay. If you are one of those people who wants a Stuff You Missed in History class, a PhD in SYMC, I don't know if I forgot letters, just buy the shirt. Nobody's going to check you. No, <laughs> We're not checking. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Listen, our time on this rock is finite. Do whatever you want that doesn't hurt somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to quiz you if I run into you and see you wearing that shirt. I won't remember all of them. So Super not. Okay. It is not a challenge coin. No. If you just feel like you got a lot more knowledge or you did a lot of work to listen to a lot of shows, you don't have to do all of them. For anybody that did do all of them, please don't feel devalued in this way. I just think, like, it's, it's, it's uh, given the changing landscape of availability of things, it is right. not worth being too stressed over it. Correct. I agree. I agree. So, if you want to send us a note about this or any other podcast, or history podcast at iHeartRadio.com, we're on social media at Missed in History. Uh, you can subscribe to our show, as we just said, on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere else you like to get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 